This is David Suisa. Welcome to my podcast. You're about to listen to an episode that I recorded last week with Brooke Goldstein, who runs the Lawfare Project. In that episode, we discuss a major case that they were working on. And it turns out that today, March 20th, there's a landmark settlement that was finally agreed and announced. And the university would acknowledge Zionism as an important part of Jewish identity and implement wide-ranging measures to protect Jewish students. Enjoy the episode. This is David Suiza. Welcome to my podcast. We have in our studios my friend Brooke Goldstein from New York. Woohoo! Woohoo, Brooke. Welcome. What are you? My God. I'm so grateful and happy to be here in sunny L.A. with you. Well, look, you're a fighter, Brooke. I've known you for many years. Uh, I'm going to read the first paragraph. (laughs) (laughs) New York-based human rights attorney, film producer, director of the Lawfare Project, founding director of the Children's Rights Institute, adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute. I've seen you on TV so many times. Um, that is an old bio. It's an old <laughs> bio, but all I know is that it's got the most important things in here, which is human rights attorney, film producer, and director of the Lawfare Project, and you were on our cover last week well, for my one of your client, clients, right? Yes. Thank you for that coverage. I appreciate it. Now, can you tell our listeners a little bit what the situation is there? Because your mission in life is just to fight for justice right. for so the Jewish I run, people? Yes. I run the world's only uh, Jewish civil rights litigation fund. And we support groundbreaking civil rights litigation on behalf of Jewish communities around the world. And one of the things we do is provide pro bono counsel to anyone who is targeted because of their religious identity or ethnic identity uh, being Judaism. And we have a situation, I'm sure you've covered it, quite extensively uh, in your paper and on your podcast, which is the rise of anti-Semitism on American college campuses. And we have two very significant lawsuits happening right now, uh, one against San Francisco State University, and the trial is scheduled for March 18th in state court. And we have a legal action on behalf of Professor Jeffrey Lax against the City University of New York, and we have also been retained by Professor Michael Goldstein, whose story you covered um, what was it last week in the paper? And all of our clients are experiencing a level of anti-Semitism, a hostile environment where they are not able to participate uh, in government-funded programs, whether they're students who want to engage in student fairs or have speakers or professors who are literally being targeted by school administrations, which is Mike Goldstein's case, because he is a conservative Zionist Jew. Michael, what's happening to him is outrageous. He has been physically threatened. His property has been destroyed. Nails were put in his tires. A picture of his 14-year-old daughter uh, was distributed. Thousands of leaflets with with a Nazi uh, insignia on it and and calling uh, for his firing because he is a Jew. And how are you helping him fight back? So we provide pro bono legal counsel. What is happening to Jewish students and professors on college campuses is illegal. It's against the law. It is illegal. So what's and the so, status of that case in so CUNY? So uh, CUNY, the case that is, is now underway is on behalf of Professor Jeffrey Lax. Now, 
Jeff Lacks has been subject to an enormous amount of discrimination because of his ethnic and religious identity by administrators at CUNY. Administrators were even caught on tape saying there are too many Jews on campus. I mean, can you imagine if, if the same thing was saying there are too many blacks on campus, there are too many mm-hmm. Muslims on campus, but that is how the administration talks about Jews. It sounds so un-American. And it's a it violation like- of his basic civil rights. And so we're litigating an That's employment discrimination That's the kind of stuff you used to hear case. from, you know, years ago. Remember when Jews were not allowed to go to Ivy League schools yes. and everything? Yes, yeah, and now and they're trying to kick the Jews off and, and, and creating an environment that is so hostile, like at CUNY and also at San Francisco State University. So let's talk about San Francisco mm-hmm. State because there's, an, um, there's a, uh, a hearing, right, coming right up. Mm-hmm. So just give us a little background on exactly the case, who were the clients, and how did they call you and so forth. So the case uh, against San Francisco State University, there is a federal case and a state case, but they're basically surrounding two... Uh, instances. One was the uh, hostile takeover and shutting down of the event featuring the former Jerusalem mayor near Barkat. When Jewish students, when Hillel invited the Jerusalem mayor to come speak, he was shouted down by an angry mob. And further, when the campus police were about to remove the students who were violating school policy using amplified sound when they're not entitled to do that, there's no heckler's veto in this country, um, the campus police were given a stand-down order by the administration and told not to intervene. When did this happen? So Nir Barkat, I believe, spoke about two years ago now um, at San Francisco State University. I'd have to look up the exact date. I should know it. Um, so who called and you? It's a, and so we're alleging, obviously, First Amendment violations. And then okay. I'll tell you, what's so significant there is because those of us in this space who are monitoring the rise of hostility and, and anti-Semitism on American college campuses are seeing that it's really kicking up notch by notch. And groups like SJP um, are Students looking, for Justice correct, in Palestine. Or, and, and administrators are looking to see how the Jewish community responds. They're looking mm. to see, you know, how do campus police respond? How, the, how, how do university administrators respond when we engage in this type of activity? Mm. And when you have a, a university who literally tells the campus police to stand down when there mm. are there is an angry mob threatening violence against other students, that sends the message, okay, the green light to continue attacking Jewish students with impunity. Um, so we intend to right that wrong and, and have been providing, together with the amazing law firm of Winston & Strawn, who has donated countless of, of hours of pro bono support, mm. over $2.5 million of pro bono for this particular support case. for this one particular case. And what's the hearing students. about, March 19th? So on March 18th, 18th, this coming March 18th, the state court, and that, that case surrounds uh, the denial of the ability of the Jewish student group Hillel to be present at a Know Your Rights Fair. There was mm. a fair where all student groups were invited to participate. And the school purposefully discriminated against the Jewish student group and denied them the ability to table at the fair. Mm. And the school admits this. They say, yes, they were denied, they were discriminated against, but, but it's not because of anti-Semitism, it's because they are Zionists. Mm. And Zionists is a political uh, point of view when it's not a protected category and it's not religious discrimination, which is their argument. Obviously, 
you know, anyone who's familiar with Judaism and Zionism knows that the two are absolutely connected and integral. I mean, Zionism is the national liberation movement of the world's oldest ethnic minority. We pray facing Jerusalem. We say next year in Jerusalem. Zionism is not uh, a political stance. It's not a support of any one government, whether it's Netanyahu or other that's democratically elected. It is merely the position that you believe the state of Israel should exist uh, and and Jews have the right to exercise self-sovereignty. But more importantly, okay... Only the Jewish students were given a political litmus test in order to participate. When the Iranian student group wanted to table, you know, or another student group wants to table, hypothetically say an Iranian student group wants to table, they're not asked, well, what is your position on Iranian Iranian nuclear disarmament? Unless you are of the same position that I am, you're not allowed to participate in the fair. They don't say to, you know, a Chinese student group, what is your position on China's one-child policy unless we agree you can table? But when the Jews come and want to table, say, hey, you Jews, what is your position, you American Jew with no connection whatsoever to the Israeli government? What is your position on occupation or settlements or these David Horowitz posters? And unless you answer the way I want you to answer, you're a bad Jew and you're not allowed to participate. That on its face is religious discrimination. To, to, to make a Jew pass some sort of political litmus test to declare they're Zionist or not Zionist before they participate in an affair, that in and of itself is religious discrimination. You know what's crazy? Qua. Uh, Qua. Well, you know, we've just <laughs> spent year after year on talking about microaggressions, mm-hmm. the right of college students to have a safe space, so that they can be protected from, God forbid, an email that offends them regarding Halloween costumes. There might be a little passage of um, Charles Dickens or, or Shakespeare that offends them, hurts their feelings, and so forth. So we're, uh, you know, awash in a world of microaggressions. And here, we're talking about macroaggressions. Right. So here we are. There's a whole track of protecting college students from microaggressions, and yet so many Jews on college campuses are experiencing macroaggressions. And this is what you're dealing with. How do you, how well, do you a d- square the circle? Clear, they can't be squared because there's a clear double standard here. And, and it's playing out also on the national level where the Democratic Party has failed to unequivocally condemn anti-Semitism in the world the world's oldest hatred. And when you cannot unequivocally condemn anti-Semitism, you, I think it's a very scary moment. You know, this case in San Francisco that you're involved mm-hmm. with, uh, it could become epic. And I'll tell you, because you're striking a real nerve here. This is the idea of anti-Semitism hiding behind anti-Zionism. And aren't you exactly on that nerve right there well, that, in this that case? That is exactly the issue. Yeah. At the case. So when are we going to see a resolution on on the case, do you think? Well, obviously, like any good lawyer, I'd like to say that we're going to settle it tomorrow. (laughs) I would hope that we could potentially settle the case. But, you know, the the case is scheduled to go to trial this March 18th. And again, it is really, I think, one of the most important cases, if not in American Jewish history, but American history, because we're really arguing that Jewish students— you know, have a right not to be discriminated against well, on campus. Let's stay. Let's keep really close on that one, Brooke. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we'll send a writer up there. I think it's great. Let's go. Let, let's talk about this hatred of Jews. I mean, 
you know, there's a whole school of thought that says this has been the greatest country in the world for Jews, and I am a firm believer in that. Just the great Jewish love affair between the Jews in America. I've written about it, I've read about it. It's just something that gives me the goosebumps. And at the same time, we're seeing this kind of revival of anti-Jewish um, sentiment in pockets across the country. And I wonder what's at the core of this besides the usual answers. I mean, uh, do we just make lousy victims? Well, that's like a so million white. dollar question. Uh, are, are we too white? Us? Are we are Jews too successful, too right. powerful, yeah. too white? At a time when those who are really honored uh, on the food chain of victims, are we just too low you know, on that it, chain? It puzzles me as much as it puzzles you. I'm not a psychologist or an anthropologist, but I, what I can say, and I think it plays off the theme that we were just talking about with SFSU, is that people justify anti-Semitism saying, you know, well, I, I don't agree with your politics, therefore I can discriminate against you because you're a bad Jew. And, and what we have now in the country is, is justification of anti-Semitism, like Congresswoman Elon Omar saying, well, you know, can't she criticize Israel? Isn't it okay to engage in a debate about this? And obviously the answer is yes. We can, of course, criticize the policies of government, but that's, that's not, what she did. not what she's doing. She's right. not talking about the legality of a Jewish presence in Judea and Samaria. She's not complaining about you know, the treatment of an Arab minority community by the Netanyahu government. She's free to talk about it. She'd, be, she'd be probably be wrong, but she's free to debate it. She is saying that American Jews buy off politicians and have dual loyalties. These are the oldest anti-Semitic tropes in the book. And obviously the question to that is, you know, where is her her loyalty? This is a woman who is working less for her constituents and more to undermine and target a minority community in this country. She is a member of a movement, the BDS movement, that argues for illegal commercial discrimination against Jews and against Israelis. She argues for the annihilation and the genocidal annihilation of the Jewish state. Her tweets read as though they have been written by the PLO. Okay, the things that she says has you would expect to hear in an Iranian mosque, not by a member of the U.S. government. So I ask, where is her allegiance? Is it with American values, or is it with those who wish to destroy American values? Well, my biggest beef with Ilan Omar is she's abandoned the Palestinians. She does nothing for them. She never promotes their cause. She doesn't promote any policies that can help the Palestinians. Well, the entire uh, pro-Palestinian movement has abandoned the Palestinians. I risk my life when I was 24 years old with my uh, co-producer and co-director, Alistair Leyland, who I met at McGill, to make a movie about the human rights abuses happening against innocent Palestinian Muslim children at the hands of the PA, the PLO, Islamic Jihad. We secured firsthand interviews with leaders of the Al-Aqsa Mata Brigades, with Hamas, with Fatah. We went to schools run by Islamic Jihad to raise awareness of the fact that Muslim children deserve to be protected. They deserve to have an education system free of incitement to hate and violence. And what happens? The Those who are in the so-called pro-Palestinian movement turn around and call us Islamophobes. We're Islamophobic for advocating that Palestinian Arab children deserve a future of peace and not one of, of death and jihad. And that really is the case. The entire movement has nothing to do with securing 
you know, a state for a Palestinian Muslim community. If that was the case, the state would have existed 20 years ago. They've been offered it three times. Three times they've denied it. Not to mention 47. No, the entire movement is built around one thing and one thing only, which is genocidal Jew hatred and hatred of the infidel. And it and it's a radicalized theological movement that's been repainted and repackaged as a civil rights movement, and it's anything but, because it literally supports the parties that are recruiting innocent Muslim children, strapping bombs on them and blowing them up by remote control. How could you possibly argue for a state of Palestine run by the PA that currently is engaged in the systematic murder, infanticide of its own children? Well, you know, the, the great irony when you come here to America and you see that so many Jews, you know, are, are liberal, progressive Jews who go fight for the rights of... The, genocide in Sudan and help the Muslims and involved with so many great liberal causes. Uh, and you see somebody like Ilan Omar or Tlaib and, you know, Cortez. I don't think they realize that these Jews that they're turning off are so much on their side. But they're not. I mean, the opposite. First of all, I've always said that Zionism is the original progressive value, the way that we traditionally have defined the term progressive and liberal, well, okay, and until it, it's been completely perverted and subjected. It's a dirty word now in right, America. But it, and, you know, what's really depressing is how some Jews consider it to be a dirty word. But I want to get back to that point of Zionism as a progressive value because it was the first political philosophy ever to argue that an ethnic minority has the right to national sovereignty. It was one of the first states ever in the modern world to have a female as the head of state. It was the first and only and remains the only state in the Middle East that affords equal protections for women, for homosexuals, and, and so forth. It is a progressive value, and that's undeniable. The reason why people fail to make that connection is because the term progressivism and liberalism has been completely redefined and perverted by a movement that seeks not to uphold women's rights, because then they would be talking about female genital mutilation and the fact that over 200,000 American Muslim girls are subjected to FGM every year illegally in this country. They wouldn't have a FGM. leader, female genital mutilation, they, they wouldn't have a leader who who is buddy-buddies with Farrakhan, uh, who's the modern-day Hitler, okay? Mm. They wouldn't be led by, by a woman who's connected Linda Sarsour to PFLP, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. The progressives wouldn't be glorifying Leila Khaled, a female hijacker who murdered civilians. These are not progressive values. And if you pick up a, a dictionary and, and, and you know read the, the definition of the term, it, it doesn't include advocating for the terroristic murder of innocent civilians, which mm. is what the so-called leaders of, of the perverted women's rights movement are doing. Um, so, really, everything's been, been turned on its head. Right. You know, I, I have a lot of sympathy for how the Palestinian conflict has come to dominate so much of the thinking about Israel, how it's drowned out a lot of these great points that we make about Israel, progressive values, and so forth. And sometimes I wonder if the Palestinian conflict did not exist it doesn't exist. Well, uh, you know, just... There is no such thing correct, as an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But okay? just for the sake of discussion, let's just say that there already was a Palestinian state. There is a Palestinian state. In it's Jordan. called Jordan. Correct. Uh, which is like 85% 
Palestinian Muslim ruled by a Hashemite king. But Correct. But if we, if we just as a thought experiment just assume that it was not even on the agenda of the world, of the media and everything, I just wonder if the situation for Israel would be different. First of all, you know who determines the situation for, for Israel? Jews and how we behave and if we're united and we protect ourselves That's and, and act happen. rationally. <laughs> but I want to clarify, when I say there is no Israeli-Palestinian conflict, what I mean is there is no conflict between Israeli people, Israeli citizens, and Palestinian Muslims. They live in harmony together in Israel. It, it works there. You mean what it, is, what yeah. there is is a manufactured conflict Okay, which is funded by theoretic total sorry theocratic totalitarianism totalitarian regimes like Iran, like Qatar, and they fund proxies to fight their war against the West. Their enemy is the infidel. America is the great Satan, and they see as the America's outpost in the Middle East the Jewish state. There is a very real conflict between Western democracies and totalitarian regimes. That conflict exists, and it's being played out through proxies in the hottest piece of real estate, which is under Jewish control right now, okay? And the and more no we repeat this Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, 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 phrase, which is wrong, the more we sort of give leeway to those who are ignoring the greater picture and think, well, if only we gave Palestinian Arab Muslims a state, if only we created another Islamist state in a sea of Islamist dictatorships, there would be peace. And the fallacy comes from the notion that there is, is an Israeli-Palestinian conflict that we have to solve, and it's not connected to anything else greater. It's a now, symptom. What's your vision of uh, the future of a situation that would be better for both sides, for Israel and the Palestinians? Well, my theory has always been, and it has come from my personal experience when I was 23, 24, 25 years old, risking my life traveling to Janin, Ramallah, Tulkam, Nablus, speaking with Palestinian Muslims, speaking with parents, going into Israeli jails, interviewing children who had been arrested for participating in violent activities, interviewing their family, interviewing leaders of terrorist organizations. Peace lies with the children. As Nelson Mandela said, there can be no keener revelation into a society's soul than the way in which it treats its own children. It must start with the children. If five, six, seven, eight-year-olds are currently being taught in school to kill themselves and to kill Jews, and this is the purpose of their life, not to become lawyers or doctors or advocate for their community through legislative or legal processes, that is what the future will look like. It will look violent. Whatever we are teaching our children, which is why it is the greatest crime of all to miseducate Palestinian Muslim children because you are serving them a violent future on a silver platter and making it all but guaranteed that they will suffer if they are not taught in their school's peace. Right. So what you're talking about is not some kind of, you know, dramatic, sexy, top-down kind of, you know, solution from the grown-ups. You're talking about just nourishing the situation with some healthier ingredients, like uh, teaching p 
peace and coexistence from the bottom up. Of course. And, and then whatever comes out of that is bound to be how good. How can you impose? How mm-hmm. can foreign states come in who know nothing about the way the Middle East works, okay, who hasn't even, have never even picked up a Palestinian textbook and read what they are teaching the future generations and their future politicians? Y- impose a peace, okay, yeah. and continue to allow this incitement to violence occur. How, you know, how it's funny, uh, Brooke, when people were saying that like 20 years ago, I uh, remember, like, the comeback was, we don't have time to do that, right? Well, then, had they started it 20 years mm-hmm. ago, because, you know, I heard this metaphor of trying to build a building, but then the foundation, instead of concrete, was like oatmeal. Mm-hmm. So it, this building could never stand, and mm-hmm. we're agonizing over how to lay out the first story. But we don't learn our lessons. Level. We don't learn the lessons from Oslo. We don't learn the lessons. And it seems to me that we keep repeating the same mistakes, which is, what is the definition of stupidity? When insanity. You, or insanity. And I think it's the definition of stupidity, stupidity too. too. <laughs> you keep doing the same damn thing and, and think something else is going to happen. Yeah, I know some friends of mine, they're in bad marriage for the same reason. But well, let's not go subject. there. <laughs> but let's talk. I want to say one more thing because you asked, what is the future? How do we create peace? I really think economic interdependence is how you do oh, it. Oh, but before you go there, mm-hmm. I want to stay with this crucial ingredient Mm -hmm. of teaching hatred to to children, because I don't believe that any baby is born with hatred. And I sat next to Dennis Ross one night, many years ago, and I asked him, he was the, as close as possible as you can get to a human being to the Oslo process Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is Dennis Ross. Mm -hmm. Hundreds, if not thousands of hours, right? And he told me his biggest regret Mm -hmm. was that they did not enforce the anti-incitement clause in Oslo. Anti-incitement is fancy language for you can't teach hate to kids and hope that peace will result. What Oslo did, it was basically a contract. It said, "We we will recognize you, the PLO, instead of being a designated terrorist group, we will recognize you as statesmen and you will receive benefits including control over territory and people provided you abide by X, Y, Z. And one of them was stop teaching your kids to kill themselves. Okay? Now, as a contract, anyone, you know, it's Law 101. The contract, if it's it's broken, if one party does not abide by their obligations, Israel abided by its obligations. The world abided by its obligations. They recognized the PA. They recognized control over certain territory. But the PA didn't do anything that it was required to do in order to gain that type of territory yeah. and, and to become legitimate. So many have argued that Oslo is dead. Oslo is null and void. Yeah, you know, the, the, the real tragedy now is that it's like the a patient who's in ER and we want to give him vitamins and complex carbs, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, oh, my God, we're so late in the game yeah. for this you know, it's gone so far. But we no, but we we're, we're, it's never too late to do the right thing, David. Okay. And, you know, I have to say, tr- the Trump administration exhibited some moral. Clarity oh my God! And you said the T word. Oh my God, Trump! I can't believe and that. In LA. Yeah, oh they'll no. never forgive me. Uh, but but, but I was going to say when when the funding was cut to UNRWA, which is the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, which is the arm of the UN that's tasked with providing aid and education in the West Bank and has been illegally using U.S. taxpayer dollars 
to hire Hamas teachers and, and invite al-Qutla al-Islamiyah and to recruit children. And uh-huh. Trump, you know, put a stop to it. We, we were on... You <laughs> just sent me a note, threw me off there, David. But we're on the right path, I think. And he has to be, you know, congratulated for that, as well as his move to recognize Jerusalem as the eternal capital of the Jewish people, regardless of whether you're left or right or Democratic or Republican. You know, if you're a proud Zionist Jew, surely you need to give the president kudos for doing the right thing. I'm you don't just, have to I'm agree just, with his policies to recognize that. I'm just concerned that it may be too little, too late. You know, we got this big peace plan that we're all waiting for impatiently. And I don't well, know. Well, the Palestinians have, have already the, rejected it. Right, they did. So you were saying something faith. before I rudely interrupted you on the economic component. Oh, right. All right. I wanted to say is quite simply that when you have people who are dependent on each other to survive, to make money, one hires the other and they're employed and there's contracts and and they're all shopping at the same supermarket and so forth, it is less likely that those two communities will then engage in conflict. And I think that's also what underlies the whole notion that democracies don't fight each other. Okay, Mm -hmm. democracies don't go to war with with each other because, number one, there are mechanisms by which they communicate and there are rules that they follow. But number two... They trade with each other. They engage with each other. And they become dependent on each other to survive. And that's why we have PACs. We have NATO. We have international treaties and so forth. Because these treaties outline the way that we are economically and, and politically when they tried, intertwined. And when they try, it blows up like the soda stream factory that was employing so many Palestinians. Well, that I mean, that's why the pro, so-called pro-Palestinian movement hurts Muslims. And time and time again, we have concrete evidence of that. You mean the BDS movement? Correct. Yeah. Correct. And they, they fashion themselves to be a movement that advocates for the right of Palestinians, but at the same time turn around and economically disenfranchise them by advocating for closing down factories that they work at just because they're owned by Jews. Did, did I mean, how racist is that? Did you ever read the line, nobody ever took a rental car or a car wash? No, <laughs> but actually, I have. Yeah. Oy, are you different? Wow, I always because, knew you were special. You know, when you have long-term rentals. Right, but uh, I mean, the whole idea is when you have a sense of ownership, you take better mm-hmm. care of it, and this that's what you're talking about. Yeah. These economic uh, mm-hmm. alliances gives you something to lose, something mm-hmm. that you're invested in that you want to maintain. Mm-hmm. That is, I think, really a recipe for peace, and, and why so many people who don't want peace are the ones who are advocating anti-normalization, that mm-hmm. two communities should not talk to each other, should not work with each other, should not have soccer games where their kids play together, mm-hmm. because that is how peace is formed and right. a lasting And peace. anybody from either side who's against that, I'm against. I'm all about normalization. We had it in Casablanca where I grew up. My parents, we got along with our Arab neighbors. One of my closest friends comes to my Shabbat table all the time. He's a Muslim professor at UCLA. And, you know, the brotherhood of man, despite the fact that we have different religions, is something that's got to play in the Middle East, even if it takes 100 years. But for some reason, the presence of little Satan is getting in the way because we're seen in a whole different light. We're not seen as indigenous. We're not seen as part of Jews as being part mm-hmm. of the Middle East. We're seen as this foreign transplant of white Ashkenazi mm-hmm. Jews from Europe. You know, and I just so did a genetic that. test. 
Don't tell me you're you Sephardic. Know what I came back? Don't tell me you're Sephardic. Percent. I've never met an Ashkenazi who admits that they're Ashkenazi 100%. <laughs> Every Ashkenazi wants to be Sephardic. Yeah. Listen, so 25 percent. I have a great deal it? of respect for yeah. the Sephardic community. I love their sense of community and traditionalism. I admire it. We have a cover story coming up in two weeks on Jews who are not white. <laughs> with one None eyebrow. None of us are, but. Oy. So who, I mean, who cares? The whole well, going they care backwards. How can you be there. so progressive and then so focused on somebody's skin color? So it's well, in any way determinative of their personality or who they are. How no, good but they it, are. but in that region of the world, you know, they do care, and it's uh, uh, you know constantly forgotten that Jews have an indigenous presence in that part of the world. And eventually, I mean, look, if it takes a hundred years, I I always want to know, you know, like the arc of. History bends towards justice in America. Mm-hmm. I so believe that, and you've seen it mm-hmm. the past 50 years. Well, Americans are good people. Well, we have a constitution, right a bill thing. of rights, and even the yeah. civil rights movement was mm-hmm. not was based on implementing the laws that were already there. But I wonder whether that paradigm, you know, is prevalent in the Middle East, whether the time is a friend or is time an enemy. Does the uh, arc of justice bent towards what? Does it bend towards more chaos? We can't oh, God, live without we're hope. Real philosophical. That's who here, I am. David. I love philosophy. <laughs> I can't live without hope. But you know, speaking of philosophy, so thanks for allowing me to really vent with useless talk there for a minute. Um, Don't you want to mention the present I, I brought you today? I will br- I'll br- bring it How up. How I in a bribed minute. you to do a podcast with me today. You know what? Uh, we had dinner with your parents, and they kept talking about this book. Yes. And, wow, you got me pumped up. The Scared and the Doomed, and the, doomed. the Jewish Establishment versus the Six Million by M.J. Nuremberger. Highly recommended yeah, by this Brooke is Goldstein's book, parents this is, from Toronto. This is the most depressing book I have ever read. Therefore, as that? a Jew, I highly recommend it. So the book chronicles M.J. Nuremberger was the founder and editor-in-chief of the Canadian Jewish News, um, which still runs and is like the Jewish Journal in Canada. My mother piles them up when I come to Montreal. <laughs> yes, I get like should, thirty of them. National. I go through. Yeah, um, it's a wonderful paper, and he uh, was part of a movement to try and help European Jews escape the Nazis, and he documented his experiences and chronicled how those of the American Jewish elite. And the Jewish establishment in America worked to undermine those who were trying to help Jews escape Nazi Germany and and the Mm -hmm. Nazis in general. And it is really a must-read, eye-opening book for one reason and one reason only, so that we do not repeat those fatal mistakes. Mm. You know, um, I'll never forget this moment. There was a play about Peter Bergson. The, he was one of the guys that that actually really tried to do something. And he would fight against Stephen Weiss. And there was such a panic at the time because, you know, Jews knew that millions of Jews were being murdered, and yet America wasn't doing anything. So there really was, just like you said here. But he, and, and it was a play, and you can see in the play, you had Stephen Weiss, who was the leader of the Jews mm-hmm. at the time, yeah. speaking with you know the president, Franklin and Roosevelt. telling him not to hear the rabbis, correct, who were collecting on the steps, congregating on the steps. It was, it was, it was, it was complicated. 
Uh, is that what I said is right? Is that the story that you're talking about? Yeah, generally speaking, yeah, it was right. But this play that I saw uh, was connected. I'm trying to look up the actual name of the play. It was actually uh, focused on this one activist called Peter Bergson who went crazy to try to make a difference. Eventually, they claimed that he ended up saving 100,000 lives, mm-hmm. although he wanted to save $6 million. Uh, But I, I remember it was a Sunday afternoon, and in the audience was Marvin Heyer. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget, on stage was the Marvin Heyer of the 40s, Stephen Weiss, in the Oval Office with Franklin Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. And in the audience was the Marvin Heyer of 2010, you know, of our era. Yeah. Uh, the Stephen Weiss of our era, yeah, who's yeah, Marvin yeah, Heyer. Right. And I would always think, what is going through his head right now? Because Rabbi Heyer, he's devoting his whole life yeah. to that. And then you see, maybe I guess it's a sign of how far we've come, you know, in terms of our influence uh, here in America. But it was, it was just a juxtaposition. I'll never forget because it was a failure, it's a failure it both a, of the Jewish people and of America. It was a murderous failure. And it was, you know, some have said the only thing that tops the extreme tragedy of the Holocaust is the reaction and the the behavior of the Jewish community and the elite here in the United States. And what we see today, and the reason why I'm recommending to read it now, is because we tend as a community to jump through hoops to justify, mm-hmm. um, you know, those who are clearly anti-Semitic. I mean, mm-hmm. how can any Jew justify the fact that the Democratic Party and Nancy Pelosi was failed to unequivocally condemn Mm anti-Semitism. Now, there was a time, I remember, when people were arguing for Black Lives Matter to be called All Lives Matter, and the Black Caucus came out and said that's racist. And yet you see Jews now arguing that you can couch anti-Semitism and you much couch it, couch the criticism of of anti-Semitism with language about Islamophobia and blah, blah, blah. I mean, the the equivalent is saying that you can't pass a resolution or, or Republicans wouldn't agree to pass a resolution condemning hate crimes against blacks or police brutality against blacks unless that same resolution talked about black crimes against whites. I mean, that's lunacy. And Jews are just jumping through hoops to justify this lunacy. It's unbelievable that we're making the Do you think there's a the price to pay mistakes. for the Democrats for this? I think that we're at a turning point, and I think that the level of of anti-Semitism that has been tolerated by the Democrats to date has now risen to a national emergency. You have Democratic uh, members of government who are campaigning with people like Linda Sarsour who are connected to the PFLP, connected designated terrorist groups. You have a woman who is an avowed anti-Semite who's serving on the House Foreign Relations Committee who apparently now is in charge of shaping our our national foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Our foreign policy, America's foreign policy. So are there consequences? Well, that depends on the voters if we're going to continue to turn a blind eye to what's happening. Um, or, or I mean, this is a real watershed moment. How the Democrats deal with, with rising anti-Semitism will shape what the country looks like in the future. And, you know, we're, we live in a nation where free speech is an enormous right, more so than in Europe. Uh, and you're you're coming from a legal angle, and I wonder if how many cases do you have now, Brooke? 
right now ongoing. I, I just counted them before the office. I might have skipped one, but I think we have 10 ongoing cases right now. And actually coming up, besides obviously the, the state trial on March 18th against San Francisco State University, there is a case, the first hearing uh, in a case in Poland that we are supporting together with a law firm of Dentons, where our clients are three Holocaust survivors, heroes over the age of 80, who are suing in a an unprecedented case, uh, the publishers of, of Nazi material in Poland, which is illegal. It's the first time ever that uh, they are affording themselves the opportunity to enforce the law. And we also have a very important hearing upcoming on April the 9th at the European Court of Justice, where we are going to be arguing against the discriminatory labeling practices um, as they are applied by the French government ag mm. against uh, imports from Israel that are connected to Judea and Samaria. Well, uh, I wonder if it's all going to come full circle, if there's any connection with some of your cases that's going to influence, you know, the policy in the Democratic Party and the attitude of anti-Semitism because, I mean, in a certain sense, you know, hate speech is not illegal in this country, but anti-Semitism, is that illegal? No. <laughs> you are free to be a bigot in this country, but if you engage, you know, in com commercial practices that discriminate against someone because of a protected category like national origin or ethnicity or, or race. That's that, that where is you illegal. come in. Okay. Like you can't have a restaurant and say no blacks allowed. I got you. you know, so you so your you cases. You can't have a company and say we don't do business with Israelis. We don't do business with the Jews or you know there's too many Jews on campus. That is illegal. All right. So you can be a bigot but you just You're can't. You're free to be a bigot. You can't you just can't discriminate. You cannot engage in commercial discrimination in this country. And all your cases have to do with some form of discrimination, Some form correct? of illegal discrimination against the Jewish community or right. free speech issues. We also provide pro bono counsel and financial support to those who are in the counterterrorism community who are sued for writing and speaking and publishing about uh, theologically motivated terrorism as a national security threat. So you're a nonprofit, right? Yes, we are. So let's just say, for the sake of discussion, there's a billionaire listening to this podcast <laughs> who really believes in what you're doing and he wanted to give you a donation. Where would he go? Well, first of all, I would em emphasize that... He or she he or she, to he or she, that the most important thing that we need to do as a Jewish community is stand up for ourselves. If we don't engage in civil rights litigation, if we don't you know, litigate and use the courts to, to apply the law to protect us, why on earth should we expect anyone to respect us? We gotta stand up for ourselves, okay? So you could go to our website, thelawfareproject.org, spelled L-A-W-F as in Frank, A-R-E. Click on the Cases tab at the top, and you will see the type of incredibly important civil rights and human rights litigation that we are engaged in on behalf of Ju the Jewish community worldwide. And consider supporting this effort, because this is the future, okay? It's enough with letter writing. It's enough with pamphlets and pro-Israel advocacy and expressing how disgusted we are with anti-Semitism. It's time to stand up for ourselves and engage in the oldest liberal tradition, which is impact litigation. If you think about how our society is formed, the seminal cases, Roe v. Wade, okay, Brown v. Board of Education, this is how the healthy societies evolve, and there is no reason why the Jewish community cannot similarly avail themselves 
of civil rights protection through the courts, just like we have been on the forefront and we invented intersectionality and we've been advocating for the civil rights of other minority communities for 30, 40, 50 years already. It's time now to stand up for ourselves. Man, I'm so pumped up. I'm taking the bus to San Francisco, <laughs> March 18th. Oh, my God. Are you going to be there? Unfortunately, no, I oh, cannot. But yeah. our team, our incredible team at Winston and Strawn is there, and our mm. uh, we have. Um, a, well, we're we're. It's a big day for yeah, you. Yeah, it's it's a big day. It's yeah. a big day for the Jewish community, obviously for plaintiffs, and again, hopefully. The school will decide to do the right thing, and we can end it here and now. But well, good. We're going to follow it, so we'll have something on JewishJournal.com uh, right after the hearing. And speaking of defense, I know you have to uh, take your kids to Krav Maga. Krav Maga. Krav Maga. <laughs> oh, bro, Goldstein, thank you so much uh, for coming in. Good luck with all your efforts, and we'll keep in touch on on all your cases. And thanks for everything you do. David, thank you for being such a good friend, a mentor, an amazing colleague. I'm just so honored to be back on your show. Great, great. Thanks again. Thank you.